0: Good morning again. Turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to Acts chapter 1. We're going to read through the first 11 verses of the book of Acts. That'll be our sermon text. And as you're turning there, why don't we pray together and ask for God's blessing on our time. Our Father, we do look to You for Your blessing on Your Word and on us as we gather around Your Word. Father, we think of that first day when You spoke to Your people at Sinai and how You have continued to gather Your people to Yourself again and again and again that they might hear Your voice And so we gather, Father, to hear your voice in your word. We pray that you would pour out your spirit on us, that you would open our hearts and our minds, that you would enable us to hear your word and be shaped by it in a way that brings you glory and honor. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Which, he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Where were you on 9-11? For a few of you in this room, that's ancient history, and uh, you you maybe weren't even born yet. But for most of us, we probably remember. Uh, I I remember I was in the Lime Kiln dorm of Westminster Seminary, and uh, I came out of my dorm room, which happened to be on the first floor, and I walked into the common area where the TV was on. And We saw the the beginning of the aftermath of the the first plane crashing into the Twin Towers Then we left there we walked the mile from the dorm to uh, Westminster Seminary uh, Praying and weeping in confusion and in shock just really not having any idea what was going on Certain events Mark History. Certain events change life as we know it. And so as you, as you think back in history, where were you on November 22nd, 1963, when Kennedy was assassinated? If you were alive, you probably remember where you were. Or for that matter, on July 21st, 1969, when the first man landed on the moon or January 28, 1986, when the Spaceship Challenger exploded on live TV. I was in the second grade, by the way, and we were watching TV in our classroom. September 11, 2001, four planes were hijacked and two crashed into the Twin Towers in New York City, and ever since, We've talked about American life in terms of uh, either pre or post 9-11. You think about that uh, as you go to the airport, right? Going to the airport is a vastly different experience today than it was 20 years ago. There are certain events that mark history, that change life as we know it. And of course, all of those events be honest, are relatively minor in the vast flow of history. Well, we mentioned last week that Scripture gives us perspective, and these first 11 verses of the book of Acts, they situate us in time. They allow us to understand the pre- and the post-world in which we live, that we live in a post-resurrection world. And we live pre the return of Jesus. And these verses give us a sense of how our situatedness in that time, in that place, shapes how we are to live now in the moment. So, this morning we're going to talk about history. We're going to talk more about history. And, and by that, I don't mean simply uh, events that happened in the past, I mean the whole timeline of history, right? From the past. Uh, to the present and on into the future. We said last week, Acts was about God's kingdom. And that's going to come up a lot as we study through the book of Acts. Acts is about God's kingdom. It's about Jesus' saving rule in the world. And so we're going to look at three things this morning. You can see the outline in your bulletin. If you want to turn there, uh, there's a place to take notes if you would like to do that. The back of your bulletin, there are three points. We're going to talk about the historical basis of the kingdom in Jesus' enthronement. We're going to talk about the present expansion of the kingdom by the Spirit's power. And we're going to talk about the future consummation of that kingdom at Jesus' return. So first, the historical basis of the kingdom in Jesus' enthronement. You know, the the Bible teaches that Jesus has been exalted as king. Meaning that he is now ruler of heaven and earth. Meaning that he is the one who is going to judge all people on the last day. But for most people, that's irrelevant. I mean, who cares what the Bible teaches after all? I mean, it's a book of myth and made up stories, people assume. Um, the things in it couldn't possibly have happened. Why should I believe that a crucified first-century Jewish rabbi rose from the dead? And why should I care? That's the apostle's message, right? That that God raised Jesus from the dead as Lord and Messiah. and, And, of course, everything from the Christian standpoint hinges on the resurrection. If there is no resurrection, there's no Christianity. In fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, if Jesus has not been raised from the dead, your faith is in vain. We might as well pack up and go home. Well, Luke, in uh, Luke and Acts, the two books that he wrote in the New Testament, Luke, above all, is a historian. Maybe better, he, he's like a news reporter of the day. Uh, Luke chapter one, verses one through four, which we read last week, Luke says, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. So he's saying many people have, have written this stuff down. Uh, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. You see, Luke's goal in the books of Luke and, and Acts is having already investigated these things, having followed them for some time past, having heard from eyewitnesses, as he says, to write an orderly account in order to give Theophilus certainty about what happened. Now, it's important to remember that when Luke wrote, there were still literally hundreds of such eyewitnesses alive. And so actually anyone with with any questions about what Luke wrote uh, could easily test what Luke wrote. They could go and ask the people in Bethlehem or the people in Galilee or the people in Jerusalem. Luke emphasizes the fact that he got his information from these eyewitnesses. He emphasizes that in the preface to his two-part work in Luke, He also emphasizes it here as well in Acts chapter 1. First, uh, post-resurrection in verse 3, uh, we see that Jesus presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. For 40 days, Jesus appeared to his disciples. This was not a, a momentary mass hallucination This was 40 days of teaching by the risen Jesus, a man the disciples had lived with for three years and knew well. After his crucifixion and death, Jesus presented himself alive, Luke tells us, by many proofs. Okay, what were those proofs? Well, we read about them in the Gospels. Uh, Jesus appeared to a group of his disciples at one point, and they are afraid because they think they see a ghost. Which is really a logical thought if you just saw someone brutally tortured and put to death and then he suddenly appears before you in a locked room. You might think, yeah, okay, we're seeing a ghost. And Jesus responds to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet that it is I myself. Touch me and see for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said these, he showed them his hands and his feet, meaning the scars on his hands and his feet from where the nails had pierced them. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate before them. Well, one person was missing that day when he appeared to his disciples. Thomas was absent. And so Thomas, when he heard about this from the other disciples, he doubted the words of his friends that Jesus had risen. He couldn't believe it. And so eight days later, to Thomas, Jesus shows up again, and he shows Thomas the spear wound in his side and the nail holes in his hands, and he invites Thomas to touch them and see. Now, Thomas didn't have to touch them, Once he saw Jesus right before his eyes, someone, again, he knew well, had lived with for three years. Thomas simply responds, my Lord and my God. And Jesus says to Thomas, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have have believed. Of course, that's all of us. Right? All of us who believe today, uh, we are those that Jesus declares blessed who having not seen yet we believe. So Jesus appeared to his disciples for 40 days, demonstrating that he really was alive, proving it to them by allowing them to see him and touch him, by eating in their presence to show that you know, he's not a ghost, he has real flesh, real bones, and simply by being in their presence for 40 days. This, by the way, is one of those scandals of particularity in the Bible. Jesus appeared to all in all about 500 people, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, 500 people after his resurrection. Now, at first, that seems like a lot, but when you begin to think about it, that's really not a lot of people in the grand scheme of history. 500 in one time, in one place. But by doing so, Jesus ensured that there would be eyewitnesses. There would be people who had seen him risen from the dead, who could speak and write about what they saw and heard. And of course, that's ultimately what we have in the New Testament, is the, the, the written testimony of those who saw and heard the risen Jesus. And so Luke is writing, you know, whether you call it a kind of court record, as some have done, or, or the eyewitness testimony of those who saw and heard, or, or a news report of what happened What really took place during those days? Luke is writing history. And yet it's not just history, right? I mean, Luke wants us to see the meaning of these events, to make connections. In fact, this this first 11 verses is littered with references and echoes to the Old Testament. And so uh, Luke at one point says that Jesus gave commandments through the Holy Spirit during those 40 days. It's a very specific word, commandments. Could have said he taught them, does that elsewhere. He instructed them, he proclaimed to them. No, he gave them commandments during those 40 days. At what other time in the history of God's people did someone give commandments over a 40-day period? Well, at Sinai, when God gave commandments to Moses for 40 days. Moses was on the mountain, you may remember And so Jesus is here shown to be the living God giving His commandments to His disciples, just as earlier He had given His commandments to Moses. Jesus, having risen from the dead, having all authority in heaven on earth, and so He now commands His disciples, teaching them about the kingdom. We come to verses 9 through 11 at the end of our text, and they continue to emphasize the disciples seeing Jesus. Now, this time, in His ascension into heaven. So they saw Him after His resurrection. They saw Him ascend up into heaven. So verses 9 through 11 say this. When He had said these things, when Jesus had said these things, as they were looking on, He was lifted up, and a cloud took Him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. I didn't count, but I think there are four or five, maybe even six references to the disciples seeing Jesus, looking at Jesus, gazing on Jesus in those three verses. But again, we need to think not just about the historicity of the thing, the fact that it happened. But what was the significance of Jesus ascending into heaven in a cloud taking him out of their sight? We tend to gloss over that. Jesus ri- rises into heaven. A cloud takes him out of uh, their sight. Where is the cloud taking him? Well, okay, the cloud is taking him into heaven. Clearly, the point is not that heaven is in space somewhere. And Jesus is sitting on Mars, right, waiting to return. Throughout Scripture, uh, the physical heavens represent the spiritual heavens. The physical heavenly places up above represent for us symbolically the heavenly places uh, uh, that are not physical, where God dwells. And so there's symbolism, right, being employed really by God as he literally raised Jesus into the sky, to communicate figuratively to the disciples that Jesus has ascended into the heavenly throne room of God, the heavenly throne room of his Father. Of course, anyone familiar with the Old Testament, uh, reading Acts in the first century would have been reminded of other clouds and other entrances into the throne room of the Father. And so you have the end of the book of Exodus. End of Exodus, you may remember that the tabernacle, which represents God's throne room on earth with the ark, which is said to be God's footstool. The tabernacle uh, has been built by the end of Exodus. A cloud covers the tabernacle. And so it fills the tabernacle so that no one can enter, not even Moses. And then later on, as, uh, as the Pentateuch goes on, the, the books of Moses go on, we see that one person is allowed to enter that throne room once a year. And so Jesus, uh, like the high priest who could enter into the the, the throne room of God once a year, Jesus literally enters into the heavenly throne room of God as our high priest to represent us before the Father. Or Daniel 7 pictures uh, yet another cloud uh, in in a vision. Daniel 7, uh, verses 9 through 14, we read it a moment ago. This time we see the Ancient of Days... God himself, right, takes his seat on his throne in this vision. Uh, There's there's fire, there's a courtroom, there are servants all around, and uh, authority is taken from the Gentile kingdoms of this world, we're told. And with the clouds of heaven comes one like a son of man. He comes near to God's throne. Interestingly, Moses was held off by a cloud, but the son of man draws near by a cloud, And uh, to him is given dominion and authority and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. See, it's it's a prophecy of the Son of Man coming and, and being inaugurated as king of heaven and earth. It's a prophecy of Daniel that is fulfilled at Jesus' resurrection and ascension when he is given all authority in heaven and on earth, and when he is seated at the right hand of the throne of the Father. And so when Jesus rose to the Father, the Father gave him all authority, all dominion over all peoples, a kingdom and an authority that would last forever. So when do we live? We live in a post-resurrection world after Jesus rose from the dead and appointed certain apostles as eyewitnesses of his resurrection, after Jesus' enthronement in heaven at the Father's right hand, after Jesus had been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Now, what's the significance of that? Well, first, Jesus' kingship alone it should radically change your life. You're not in charge of your life. You're not the captain of your own destiny. You're not the king in your own castle. You're not the lord of your own manor. You answer to another. And his name is Jesus. God has set him up as king. See, the universe is not a democracy. You don't get to vote on the law of gravity, and you don't get to vote on who will be the king of heaven and earth. Jesus has been set up as your king. And as I read at one point this week, when we, when we swear allegiance to a new king, we embrace a new set of values, a new way of thinking, and a new lifestyle of choices. And the result, this writer said, is that we, we no longer belong to this world. We must then, he said, accept the fact that as an alien, life will be uncomfortable. And people will naturally question your decisions. See, Jesus is our king, which means this world as we know it is not our home. We are aliens and strangers on earth. But of course, Jesus' rule as king is a saving rule. Jesus has come to restore the world to its former glory. And while much of that does await Jesus' return, That restoration has already begun. Jesus right now offers us reconciliation to His Father. Right now, He offers us a royal pardon and renewal by His Holy Spirit. Do you know that God has raised up Jesus as as King, as Lord, as Messiah? And have you heard that Jesus offers a royal pardon to those who trust in His name? Maybe you think, well, I'm not really that bad of a person. What do I need a pardon for? Well, in any kingdom, I hate to tell you, it's really irrelevant what you think about yourself. You don't set the standards of that kingdom. You don't make the laws. The question is not, do you think you're a good or a bad person? You know, One way to think about sin is, is sin is treason against the crown. So the question is, are you aligned with the king's agenda? Rather than honor our king, what we normally do is seek to set up our own competing kingdoms. We live a a life for our own power and our own glory and our own honor, our own comfort, our own happiness. Do you live submitting your life to the king? Or is your life at cross-purposes with His. If you don't know, you should try to find out. And then turn to the King and trust in His name and find forgiveness and reconciliation with the God of heaven. This is the historical basis, right, of, of the kingdom. In Jesus' enthronement as King, God the Father has made His Son, Jesus, King over heaven and earth. He exalted him through the resurrection from the dead and then up to the right hand of the throne of the Father. We believe on the basis of the eyewitness testimony of the the apostles. They saw that Jesus risen from the dead. He gave them many convincing proofs. We have their testimony written down as a kind of legal exhibit A for all time in the New Testament. That is the historical basis of the kingdom in Jesus' enthronement. And yet the truth of the matter is, no one, not me, not you, would believe based on that testimony alone. We need something else to convince us. And what we need is the work of the Spirit in our hearts. And so we turn uh, to the second point, Which is about the present expansion of the kingdom by the Spirit's power. Jesus left his disciples with a mission. Every gospel and Acts records Jesus commissioning his disciples and sending them out to take the gospel of the kingdom into all nations. Despite the fact that Jesus had spent three years with his disciples pre cross, and then another 40 days with them post resurrection the disciples still don't entirely get it. Like us, they are very slow to learn. And they misunderstand at least three things. Uh, They misunderstand the timing of this kingdom. They misunderstand the dimensions of this kingdom. And they misunderstand the power of the kingdom. Look at verse 6. Verse 6, when they had come together, they asked Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? First, they're confused about the timing. Lord, will you at this time. They expected an immediate restoration of the kingdom. Now, on the one hand, what that meant was that they didn't fully understand that Jesus had already received all authority in heaven and on earth. That's what Jesus says in Matthew's version of the Great Commission. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go. Jesus was raised as king. They're not... There's no waiting for the kingdom. The Davidic kingship has been restored because a Davidic king has been appointed and has been seated on the throne. And yet, on the other hand, the disciples don't fully understand the gradual nature of Jesus' kingdom, that his kingdom would spread organically over thousands of years, filling the earth. It doesn't come in its fullness in a moment. In fact, it will only come in its fullness at Jesus' return. They're also confused, though, not only about the timing, but but about the dimensions. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Their vision for the kingdom was geographically and ethnically restricted. The kingdom was Israel's kingdom. Israel as a nation. Israel as a people. The center would surely be in Jerusalem, in Zion, the city of God that the Old Testament talks about. If the Gentiles wanted to join, of course, they, they could come to Jerusalem and become Jewish through circumcision. They were welcome to do that. But make no mistake, the disciples figured, it's, it's Israel's kingdom, not theirs, not the Gentiles. Third, they're confused about the power of this kingdom or the dynamic of it. We see that in the use of the word restore. 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 Uh, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? What kind of kingdom was Israel of old? It was a political kingdom with political power. And there were times when it was a political powerhouse in the Middle East. That's what the disciples wanted. That's what the disciples expected. They expected the the Messiah to overthrow Rome and restore Israel to her glory days as a political power on the world stage. Won't it be great, they thought, when we're back in the old days, when we have that kind of power once again? Well, Jesus responds to each of these confusions in verses 7 and 8. He really does. He, he speaks to each one. So, verse 7, Jesus said to them, one, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. First, Jesus addresses the timing, right? He says, it's not for you to understand. And of course, the, di- the, the disciples can't understand the timing properly. Because at this point, they they don't understand the other two things. You know, a local political kingdom could come right now. So why doesn't it? They wonder. Well, that's not the kind of kingdom that Jesus is setting up. Second, Jesus says his kingdom, his rule, yes, it begins in Jerusalem, but it will extend to Judea and to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. It's not a localized kingdom. Of the few. And of course, that's not just a a geographic, but it's also an ethnic expansion. It begins with the Jews in Jerusalem, it extends to the Samaritans, half Jews in Samaria, and then to the Gentiles at the ends of the earth. And that's what we're going to see as we read through the book of Acts that that, that there's a, a geographic and an ethnic expansion of Christ's saving rule to all nations. Third, Jesus says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. This is really the most radical of the three. Jesus says, my kingdom will not grow by political power. We're not restoring the kingdom to Israel's former political glory. That's not what it's about. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. It will not grow... Kingdom will not grow through making laws, but through bearing witness. Making laws is great, but laws, making laws, cannot change hearts. The Spirit does that through the word of the gospel. And so let's think about this for a minute. Let's think about uh, how practical this is. Jesus is ruling in heaven. His saving rule is destined to fill the earth. It's not limited uh, geographically to one location. It's not limited ethnically to one people. But his rule will spread, and it will spread not by earthly power, but by the Spirit empowering us to bear witness to Jesus through word and deed. Sounds great. Here's the problem with that, I think. I think when we we, we can think about that in the abstract, but it really makes no sense to us. I mean, it sounds good, but what does it mean? It didn't make sense to the disciples. When they thought of God's kingdom, they had in mind a local kingdom of people that looked just like them that came about through earthly political power now. That's what the disciples expected. I mean, why wait for the kingdom when you can have it now? when you can manipulate the political process to bring it now. What all this means is that our vision of the kingdom is distorted. We still don't understand what Jesus was talking about. On the one hand, we we don't want a Jesus who is going to set the world right in the future. We want a Jesus who is going to set the world right, right now. This is why the message of your best life now appeals to us so much. This is what we want. We want want a God who's going to make everything right for us. And if he doesn't, we question him. Now, each of us may define that differently. What what does that kingdom now look like? Does it look like a a Christian America or a pure church or or perfect doctrine or financial success? What does the kingdom now look like for us? Whatever it is, we get sucked up in building a kingdom that is not Jesus' kingdom. We're trying to make the world into the kingdom of Jesus now, or at least into our vision of the kingdom of Jesus now, rather than to bear witness to the kingdom of Jesus that is to come. That's our job, to bear witness to what Jesus is going to bring. It's not for you to know the times or the seasons Yes, Jesus has risen as king, but his kingdom will not come in fullness until his return. And we must live in that tension and not try to solve it. Jesus is king, but his kingdom will not come in fullness until his return. He is ruling. He is reigning. He is extending his saving rule. But his kingdom will not come in its fullness until his return. Two, truth be told, when we think about the kingdom, we often think about something that looks a lot like us. We want a church with our kind of music. We want a place where we feel comfortable. And we say things like, well, if other people want to join us, they're welcome to join. Everyone is welcome. But everyone being welcome in my kingdom is not the kingdom that Jesus had in mind. It's not a Jewish kingdom that Gentiles can be a part of if they're willing to become Jewish. It's the kingdom of Jesus, who is the king of every tribe and tongue and nation. We need to be careful, I think, when we say, well, they can be a part of what we are doing. Implied in that is is we're not going to change to welcome them in. We're not going to do anything to welcome them. We're just going to say they're welcome. Yet we're going to see as we move through the book of Acts that the church did things as it broke down barriers from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the end of the earth. Third, I think our, our biggest distortion of the kingdom or one of our biggest distortions of the kingdom, one of our biggest temptations, as Dr. Boyce put it, is to do the Lord's work in the world's way. See, we seek to extend the rule of Jesus through laws and politics. That's the temptation of the disciples, right, to pursue a political kingdom. We think if only we can get the right laws passed, then we can change the world for Jesus. Or we seek to build the kingdom through academics, If only we can make Christianity academically acceptable, then our teachers, then our colleagues, then our fellow students will accept it. Or we build the kingdom through finances, right? If we can just raise enough money, then we can do amazing things for Jesus. Or popularity. If we can just make Christianity cool, then the kingdom will come. Then people will accept Jesus and turn to him in faith. We just aren't culturally hip enough yet. We just need to keep trying. But, of course, neither money nor politics nor academics nor popularity will bring in Jesus' kingdom. The reason is that none of these things move people to put their trust in Christ. They they may build a big church. It, It may look like things are growing But these things, rather than moving people into the kingdom of Jesus, move the kingdom of Jesus into people's existing agendas. It subordinates Jesus to what we already believe in, money or power or politics or whatever. Hearts are changed only by the power of the Spirit who uses the gospel message of the kingdom to transform us and draw us to Christ. Only the Spirit can move us, stubborn folk, to submit our lives and our agendas and our habits and our schedules to King Jesus. So, when do we live? We live in a time of the present expansion of the kingdom. A kingdom that is present in Jesus' reign, but is not yet fully present because suffering and sin and death still exist. We live in a time when the gospel is going to the nations. To the end of the earth, as Luke puts it in Acts, as Jesus put it in Acts 1.8, as Isaiah puts it again and again, that that, that God made Jesus a light to the Gentiles, that salvation would be known to the end of the earth. We live in a time when uh, breaking down social and economic and ethnic barriers through the gospel, through the gospel, is the call of the church. We live in a time of proclaiming grace to the ends of the earth, a time when the Spirit uses the simple means of telling others about Jesus, His death and His resurrection, to spread the saving rule of Jesus to the nations. Do you believe that God uses that to build His kingdom? Just telling others about the gospel, telling others about Jesus? I have to confess, very often I doubt it. I'm I'm often tempted to think there's got to be something else. There's got to be something more. Maybe it's social or academic acceptability. Maybe it's political pressure. Maybe it's some ephemeral notion of cool. Whatever it is, there's got to be something that will convince people. But it's the Spirit. It's the Spirit who must bring people to faith. And He does that through the sharing of the apostolic testimony as he then works faith in our hearts through the word, the spirit using the word in people's hearts. That's the way God works in the world. So that's the historical basis of the kingdom in Jesus' enthronement to the right hand of the father as king. That's the present expansion of the kingdom by the spirit's power working with the word. Now let's talk about the future consummation of the kingdom at Jesus' return. While on the one hand, uh, we are tempted very often to do God's work in the world's ways, to build our own kingdoms in the present, there's another temptation, and that's the temptation to passivity. Sometimes we, we overemphasize the, the already, right, what God has already done. Jesus has risen. We can now bring the kingdom and change the world for Christ. Sometimes we overemphasize the, the not Yet. Right? What has not yet come about. Jesus will bring his kingdom when he's good and ready. And so I'm just going to sit back and wait until he does. This was one of the temptations of the disciples. Uh, we saw it in verses 9 and 10. You know, they watch as Jesus ascends into heaven and disappears. But then they just stand and stare. Now, maybe they're hoping that Jesus is going to come right back you know, a quick trip to the heavenly throne room or something like that. Maybe they're just nostalgic for the good old days. Maybe they've forgotten Jesus' commands. Whatever the case, they don't move. They just stand and stare. Maybe they're just awestruck by what they just saw. I guess that's possible too. They, just, they don't move, though, until two angels appear to them and give them this mild rebuke in verse 11. They say, Men of Galilee... Why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? Jesus is going to return, they say. You can be sure of that as he ascended and disappeared into the clouds, so he will appear with the clouds on the last day. Every eye will see him, every knee will bow, every tongue confess. But in the meantime, we have a job to do. Interestingly, the disciples' job at that point was to wait. Uh, You remember back in verse 4, verse 4, while staying with them, Jesus orders them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. But at the moment, they weren't in Jerusalem. They were on the Mount of Olives, and so the angels are saying, look, you have a command. Get to it. Get to Jerusalem. Stop standing around and staring into the sky and get to work. Do what Jesus has called you to do. Now, uh, I don't know about you, I've always loved the story of Robin Hood. I think Robin Hood was one of the, the few books I actually read in middle school for fun. And, uh, You know, at the end of Robin Hood, you you remember what happens at the end of Robin Hood, at least some versions of Robin Hood, Richard the Lionheart returns to undo the tyranny of his brother John's wicked rule. And the return of Jesus is a little like that. Jesus is the king who will return to undo the work of Adam and humanity's relatively poor stewardship of the created order. Jesus is going to set all things right, including refurbishing heaven and earth and raising his people bodily from the dead to live forever in that renewed creation. Of course, that analogy, with Jesus being Richard the Lionheart, makes us Robin Hood, which is why it's a great analogy. We live in the present in the name of the King to come. We represent his rule even in his absence, even when the ruling powers are against us. Now, the analogy breaks down, of course, because Jesus is present right now by his spirit. In fact, that's the only way we can get anything done, because his spirit is at work in us. But the basic analogy is sound, right? We have work to do proclaiming the kingdom even as we await the return of the king and yet we're so often tempted aren't we tempted to become consumed with the reality of the world what it offers how it works to think about the present kingdom and not the future kingdom to think about the kingdoms of this world and all the power that they have to offer rather than the kingdom of Jesus we are enamored by its glitter and its strength which leads us to either passively avoiding the world as as too far gone for any good to be done or using the world's methods to do the Lord's work. It leads either to living in, in pessimism and despair in the midst of the disappointments and the struggles of life because everything is hopeless anyway. Look at how strong King John is, after all. Or we crusade in the name of Jesus, hoping by the world's strength to bring God's kingdom. Well, Jesus has risen from the dead as Lord and Messiah and King. He has ascended into heaven, has been seated at the right hand of the throne of the Father. So bow your knee to him as king and embrace your identity as an alien and stranger in the world today. We don't fit. This world is not our home. But Jesus has given us his spirit to empower us, not to build the kingdom now through political, academic, or social means, or whatever you might find, but to proclaim the kingdom that is to come, to bear witness to it in word and deed as we love our neighbor as ourself in the power of the Spirit. And so actively engage with those around you in humility, trusting in the Spirit's work through you. And we do that looking forward, of course, to Jesus' return, knowing that all things will be put right on the last day, all wrongs will be righted, all tears will be wiped away. And so set your hope in the midst of the disappointments and the struggles of life on the return of Jesus and the fullness of His kingdom to come when every knee will bow to our risen and reigning King. Let's pray. Our Father, we confess how enamored we become with the world, with the powers of this world, with the strength of the world, the beauty of the world. And yet, when we stop and open our eyes and look to Jesus, we see a far greater power. We see the power of the resurrection and the power of the Spirit to change, first and foremost, our hearts. And secondly, the lives of those around us as well. Our Father, help us to rest in the Spirit's power and help us to proclaim Jesus, to to share the good news of your grace in the cross and in the resurrection, to proclaim that the kingdom has come, is coming, and will come finally on the last day. And to do that, not not relying on, on our words, on our ingenuity, but relying on your Spirit to use your word to change our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.